Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins.com. Info. Looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Origins. This is episode 20 and I'm Paul Rex and I'm from Brisbane, Australia. This episode is entitled, Where Angels No Longer Fear to Tread. Other stories we'll be looking at in this episode include A Brief History of Human Sex An Ancient Global Dimming Event Has Been Linked to a Volcanic Eruption A Saturnian Moon May Have a Hidden Ocean The BBC microcomputer ignites memories of a revolution. And clueless guys can't read women. The sound of the aurora. And an Easter surprise story. The world's oldest rabbit bones have been found. And a new fossil suggests the oldest upright walker. The Earth has more than one North Pole. And the UFO phenomenon. Is it religion or science? and the universe's most powerful blast is visible to the naked eye. Links to all of the articles are available on my show notes at www.origins.info. Sometimes on these podcasts you may hear an ad for TalkShoe placed at the beginning. This is because the podcasts are hosted by the TalkShoe network and they do it for me at no cost, so an ad at the beginning is a small price to pay.
The first article today comes from the LiveScience.com website and it's entitled A Brief History of Human Sex and it's by Heather Whips. Bees do it, birds do it. Humans since the dawn of time have done it. But just how much has the act really changed through the millennia and even in past decades? Are humans doing it more? Are we doing it better? Sort of, say scientists. But it's how people fess up to the truth about their sex lives that has changed the most over the years. Humans have basically been the same anatomically for about 100,000 years. So what is safe to say is that if we enjoy it now, then so did our cave-dwelling ancestors and everyone else since, experts say. Just as our bodies tell us what we might like to eat or when we should go to sleep, they lay down for us our pattern of lust, says the University of Toronto psychologist Edward Shorter. Sex has always offered pleasure. Sexuality has a lot to do with our biological framework, agreed Joanne Rogers, Director of Media Relations and Lecturer at Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions. People, and indeed all animals, are hardwired to seek out sex and to continue to do so, Rogers said in a recent interview. I imagine that is evidence that people at least like sex, and even if they don't engage in it as a biological imperative. It is nearly impossible to tell, however, whether people enjoyed sex more 50 years ago or 50,000 years ago, said David Buss, professor of psychology at the University of Texas and author of The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating, Basic Books 2003. There is no reason to think that we do more now than in the past, although we are certainly more frank about it, Buss told Live Science. Indeed, cultural restraints rather than anything anatomical, have had the biggest effect on our sexual history, Shorter says. To be sure, what people actually experience is always a mixture of biological and social conditioning. Desire surges from the body, the mind interprets what society will accept and what not, and the rest of the signals are edited out by culture, he writes in his book. Written in the flesh, A History of Desire, published by the University of Toronto in 2005. That's not to say that cultural norms keep people from exploring the taboo, but only what is admitted to openly, according to archaeologist Timothy Taylor of Great Britain's University of Bradford. The idea that there is a sexual line that must not be crossed, but in practice often is, is far older than the story of Eve's temptation by the serpent, he writes in The History of Sex, Four Million Years of Human Sexual Culture, published by Bantam Books in 1996. Religion especially has held powerful sway over the mind's attitudes towards the body's carnal desires. Most sexual psychologists agree. Men and women who have lived during the pious Middle Ages were certainly affected by the fear of sin, Shorter said, though he notes there were other inhibiting factors to consider too. The low priority attached to sexual pleasure by people who lived in distant times is inexplicable unless one considers the hindrances that existed in those days, Shorter writes. He points especially to the thousand years of misery and disease, often accompanied by some very unsexy smells and itching that led up to the Industrial Revolution. After the mid-19th century, these hindrances started to be removed, and the great surge towards pleasure begins. 
Many historians and psychologists see the late 1800s as a kind of watershed period for sexuality in the Western world. With the Industrial Revolution pushing more and more people together, literally, in dense, culturally mixed neighbourhoods, attitudes towards sex became more liberal. The liberalisation of sexuality kicked into high gear by the 1960s with the advent of the birth control pill, letting women get in on the fun and act on the basis of desire as men always had, according to Shorter. The 1960s vastly accelerated this unhesitant willingness to grab sex for the sheer sake of physical pleasure, he said, noting that the trend of openly seeking out sex just because it feels good, rather than for procreation alone, has continued on unabated into the new millennium. But despite the modern tendency towards sexual freedom, even today there are vast differences in attitudes across the world, experts say. Cultures vary tremendously in how early they start having sex and how open they are about it, and how many sexual partners they have, said Buss, noting that Swedes generally have many partners in their lifetime, and the Chinese typically have few. An informal 2005 global sex survey sponsored by the condom company Durex confirmed Buss's views. Just 3% of Americans polled called their sex lives monotonous, compared to a sizable 26% of Indian respondents. While 53% of Norwegians wanted more sex than they were having, a respectable 98 times per year on average, 81% of the Portuguese were quite happy with their national quota of 108 times per year. Though poll numbers and surveys offer an interesting window into the sex lives of strangers, they're still constrained by the unwillingness of people to open up about a part of their lives that's usually kept behind closed doors. And if we weren't bound by such social limitations? Taylor offers the promiscuous and very laid-back bonobo chimpanzee as a utopian example. Bonobos have sex most of the time, a fairly quick perfunctory and relaxed activity that functions as a social cement, he writes. But for cultural constraints, we would all behave more like bonobos. In physical terms, there is actually nothing that bonobos do that some humans do not sometimes do. Tan, writing for the National Geographic News, reports about an ancient global dimming which has been linked to a volcanic eruption. A dry fog that muted the sun's rays in AD 536 and plunged half the world into a famine-inducing chill was triggered by the eruption of a supervolcano, a new study says. The cause of the 6th century global dimming has long been a matter of debate, but a team of international researchers recently discovered acidic sulphate molecules, which are signs of an eruption in Greenland ice. This is the first physical evidence for the AD 536 event, which according to ancient texts from Mesoamerica, Europe and Asia, brought on a cold darkness that withered crops, sparked wars 
and helped spread pestilence. Scientists had suspected the dry fog was caused by a volcanic eruption or a comet strike, but searchers had failed to uncover evidence for either catastrophe until now. There is no need at the moment to invoke a large-scale extraterrestrial event as the cause, because the evidence is conclusive enough to say that this is certainly consistent with it being a large volcano, said study team member Keith Briaffa of the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom. The discovery is detailed in a recent issue of the journal Geophysical Research Letters. Tests show the Greenland sulphate molecules were deposited sometime between AD 533 and 536, this data correlates well with a sulphate peak found in an Antarctic ice core. The team suspects the eruption occurred near the equator since its ash fell on both sides of the globe. The Greenland evidence is also consistent with tree ring data from around the northern hemisphere that showed reduced growth rates lasting more than a decade, starting in AD 536. Curiously, the eruption's cooling effect did not extend to the southern hemisphere, the scientists say. Together, the tree ring and acid evidence suggest the 6th century eruption was even bigger than Indonesia's Mount Tambora eruption in 1815, which also dimmed the sun. Ken Wolitz, a volcanologist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, said that while the new evidence strongly supports a large volcanic eruption, a space impact can't yet be ruled out. Over two-thirds of the Earth's surface is covered with water, and because erosion so quickly wipes away evidence of impacts, the knowledge of when large-scale impacts have occurred in the past is still very incomplete, said Wolitz, who was not involved in the study. To cement their case, volcano advocates will need to find ash layers deposited by the blast, Wolitz said. William Ryan an oceanographer at Columbia University's Lamont Dowatry Earth Observatory in New York, believes it is only a matter of time until ash layers are found. I suspect we haven't searched adequately, but this paper will start a hunt, Ryan said. According to written records, the dry fog lingered for just over a year, leaving an indelible mark on human history. Chinese historians recorded famine events and summer frosts for years after the event. It was also around this time that a band of Mongolian nomads called the Avars migrated westward towards Europe, where they would eventually establish an empire. The group may have left home when grasslands that their horses grazed on withered under the darkened skies, historians said. More controversially, some historians claim the drought caused by the fog contributed to the decline of the Mesoamerican city of Teotihuacan. The spread of bubonic plague throughout Europe and the Middle East, the rise of Islam and the fall of the Roman Empire have also been controversially tied to the event. If a similar volcanic eruption were to occur today, the effects could be just as devastating, experts say. The reduced sunlight and ashfall would affect agriculture worldwide and the thick veil of dust and ash could cripple transportation and communication systems. Most aircraft cannot fly in volcanic dust clouds, Los Alamos's Wallets said. And these dust clouds have a large electrostatic potential that disrupts radio communication. To make matters worse, 
there is practically nothing humans can do to prevent such a catastrophe from happening again or to lessen its effects. In today's society, we're no less independent of nature than humankind ever has been, Wallet said. In fact, we might even be more dependent on it. And from the bbc.co.uk website, an article by Helen Briggs, who is their science reporter. The Saturn moon may have a hidden ocean. Saturn's moon Titan may have a deep hidden ocean, according to data published in the journal Science. Radar images from the Cassini-Huygens mission reinforce predictions that a reservoir of liquid water exists beneath the thick crust of ice. If confirmed, it would mean that Titan has two of the key components of life, water and organic molecules. Currently, three other solar system objects are suspected of having deep oceans, Ganymede, Callisto and Europa. The Cassini-Huygens mission is a cooperative project of the US space agency NASA, the European space agency, the ESA, and the Italian space agency, the ASI. When Cassini began to observe the largest of Saturn's moons in 2004, the surface was thought to be completely covered with an ocean of hydrocarbons. But when the spacecraft turned its radar on the moon for the first time in 2004, and the Huygens probe parachuted to the surface a year later, a different picture emerged. Much of the surface was found to be solid, with geological features such as dunes, channels and impact craters punctuated by vast lakes. Cassini's latest flyby of Titan is providing a new glimpse of these features, which to researchers' surprise are not in the place they should be. Coupled with models of how the moon spins, the data suggests that the observed seasonal variation in spin rate could only exist if a liquid ocean lay beneath the solid crust. The researchers, led by Dr. Ralph Lorenz of John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory in the US, say their predictions can be checked in the proposed extended Cassini mission or in future missions. John Zanecki, Professor of Space Science at the UK's Open University, who was not part of the study, said the motivation to go back to Titan with a more sophisticated space probe was overwhelming. Evidence suggests that Titan has two of the key constituents for the formation of life, water and organic molecules, and possibly a third, a source of energy, he said. Professor Zarnecki told the BBC News, We know there are organic molecules. The place is swarming in organics. Titan is 50% water ice. If it is liquid, as this paper is implying, some of it is, it looks as though we've got at least two of the things to initiate the chemistry that leads to life. It wouldn't be too far-fetched to imagine certain spots on Titan where there would be a source of energy, maybe geothermal energy as we have on Earth at the bottom of the oceans. 
Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system. Only Jupiter's Ganymede satellite is bigger. Past observations have shown that Titan in many ways resembles a very early Earth, particularly in the composition of its atmosphere. The major difference is the frigid temperatures out near Saturn. Professor Zarniki added, We've got to go back again with balloons and rovers and really understand this place. And another story from the bbc.co.uk website, and I've actually been around long enough on this planet to actually remember this computer system, but for any of the listeners who haven't, it's been more than 26 years after the Cambridge company Acorn and the BBC united to produce a computer to help to educate the United Kingdom about the IT revolution. And some of the principal creators of the machine have gathered together to remember its legacy. The casings may be slightly worn and the manuals a little dog-eared, but a handful of BBC micros were fired up at the Science Museum on Thursday as part of a Computer Conservation Society event to mark the legacy of the BBC micro known fondly as the Beeb. Four of the architects of the Beeb, Herman Hauser, Steve Ferber and Sophie Wilson who worked at Acorn and former BBC executive producer John Radcliffe, explained in their own words how the BBC Micro came to be created and the impact it had. And this is a quote from Steve Ferber. In March 1981 we knew the BBC were interested in Acorn. Herman Hauser told us that the BBC were coming five days before they arrived, but we didn't even have a machine. But we had built several computers already, so we were able to build a prototype for the BBC in five days, which I remember as being five days and four nights. There was a huge gap between what the BBC wanted and what we had planned to build. Their technical specification was basically a Z80 processor machine running CPM, an operating system. What they contracted from Acorn was a 6502 processor machine running a proprietary operating system. We ultimately delivered that through the second processor which could be added to the BBC. We did get there in the end. I think their key reason for wanting that specification was that there was a reasonably established market and they felt that with an estimate of 12,000 machine sales they'd need to fit into the existing market. The reality turned out completely at odds to that. BBC sales completely swamped that of the Z80. More than one and a half million were sold and the BBC became the de facto computer to build software for. I don't think anyone at the outset anticipated the scale of the take-up. Clearly once we were talking to the BBC, we were aiming for the market they were planning to target their programs at, which I think was somewhere in schools, but also across to more enthusiastic homes. They were trying to move it out of the geek hobbyist sector because they saw this technology was going to affect everybody, particularly in business. 
We very much felt like pioneers, although we weren't quite the first. We knew that Apple had come out with the Apple II, which in many ways had a similar position in the US market to the one the Beeb had over here. They were a couple of years ahead of us. We had useful technical advantages over the Apple coming later. We ran the processor twice as fast, and of course the Beeb had a lot of interfaces, and probably proved to be the most expandable home computer there ever has been. We had done networking with Atom as an upgrade, which was satisfactory, and that technology wasn't built into every machine, and this of course was ten years before general population began to get involved with the World Wide Web. Technically, the BBC Micro really caused Acorn to grow and was responsible for the development of the ARM processor, which followed very shortly after the BBC Micro. And the ARM is now the world's dominant architecture in the mobile embedded space, with absolutely unbelievable numbers. They have just passed their 10,000 million point. The other legacy which keeps coming back to me is that a generation of people cut their computing teeth on the BBC Micro, so I still meet people who say they did their first computing on the Beeb. Herman Hauser We knew we were in a competition. There were six firms the BBC talked to, and one of them was our arch enemy, Sinclair. We knew we had to work very hard to come up with a solution that was better than Sinclair. It was a wonderful rivalry. Sinclair and Acorn at the time were the two key competitors in the space and we egged each other on. There was a lot of local rivalry attached to it also. Steve Ferber had been working on a machine we called a Proton, although this was really a machine that was still a vision more than any concrete design. It was quite a specific and worked out vision, so when the BBC came with their requirements, it was very ambitious as the specification was way above anything that was available at the time. It was a real stretch, but a stretch that young companies enjoy. One very interesting complaint that I have from lots of computer science departments now is that people don't learn how to program at school anymore. When they use PCs, they don't program them. When they used BBC Micro, they programmed them themselves, because it was so simple to write in BBC Basic. It was this generation that grew up programming BBC Basic that is partially responsible for the tremendous position we have in gaming. One of the great advantages of working with the BBC, apart from the tremendous publicity, was the specifications it gave to us, in terms of graphics, speed and networking. It's hard to say if we would have specified a computer similar to the BBC Micro if we had not been approached by the BBC. The sad part of the story is that we missed a trick. We were so far ahead of the game, and I remember when Bill Gates visited us and I showed him an operating system that was so much more developed than MS-DOS at the time. We thought this was a clear advantage, not realising that the game had changed, and the real advantage was standards. We never thought of giving our operation system away. It was our crown jewels. The same thing was true of our Econet, our networking system. We were way ahead with our networking. I remember Bill Gates marvelling at our networking because he didn't know about networking at the time. By keeping it proprietary, we were fighting Intel and Microsoft on their home turf, and there was no way that a little company from England could win that. In a way, the surprise is how long Acorn managed to hold out. 
For 10 years we managed to beat Intel and Microsoft with a product that was much more powerful. Our products were more powerful than PCs for 10 years. Acorn became the Fairchild of Cambridge. Chipmaker Fairchild spawned Silicon Valley in the US. There are about 100 companies which can trace their origins back to Acorn and some of them, ARM, CSR, Verata, are billion dollar companies which are bigger than Acorn could ever have hoped to be. Herman Hauser is the co-founder of Armadeus Capital Partners, a venture capital company. Sophie Wilson Herman had agreed with the BBC to show a prototype of a machine which at that stage was only in my head and we'd only discussed it. He sequentially rang up Steve and myself and told each of us that the other had agreed to do it. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we had to draw a circuit diagram of what we were going to build and find all the components and what we wanted was very specialised things like 4 MHz DRAM memory chips which didn't really exist at the time. I had read about it in a data book by Hitachi. We had things like Hitachi reps showing up with the four DRMs that were in the country. We built early machines by hand, but the BBC machine prototype was built in wire wrap. Herman knew people in the Cambridge Computer Lab who wire wrapped their equipment, and we got a man called Ram Banaji to come and help us. He was nicknamed the fast gun in the West and was a demon at wiring things. Wire wrap is a simple way to prototype equipment. We built the actual machine Wednesday night and into Thursday evening and then of course it didn't work and we had to start debugging it. That debugging took all Thursday evening into Friday morning. I had to go home and get some sleep because I knew I would have to write some software for the machine. I came back at 6am Friday morning by which time it was working. By the time the BBC people arrived at our offices we had an operating system and basic interpreter running so that we could type on the screen and that stuff could come out. Before they left we had random graphs showing on the screen. We were fairly confident we had built something that would stay working during the demonstration. It was a rush to try and alter things to a state that we thought would be interesting to look at to show them things that they would understand. It was a massive arms race to build the machine into reality. It meant designing two logic arrays, what we call today system on a chip, one for video and the other for a cassette interface, and get all of that ready. We also had to write the operating system and software to a spec that the BBC wanted. I think that there were five of us in the offices writing the operating system for the machine on the day Charles and Diana got married. We had a little TV in the office and had a five minute break to watch her walk down the aisle and then we were back programming and soldering. We realised it was something special because before there were even production machines we were involved in technical help for the TV programs. The very first TV program that came out, Steve and I were there in the studio making sure the machines performed. Steve to this day says he remembers he had a soldering iron and I was programming busily to make the machines work. People wanted to know more about computers. It was a unique moment in time when the public wanted to know how this stuff works and could be shown and taught how to program. Sophie Wilson is chief architect at Broadcom. John Radcliffe It was very radical and unusual thinking. We did it because the BBC felt it was necessary. 
The BBC looked at it on all sides cautiously. BBC Engineering and Engineering Research had a very positive view and the fact that they thought it would be educational and beneficial to the BBC technically was a factor which weighed with top management. We were in the business of developing computer literacy. We had 10 television programs, but people don't learn very much from programs. There's nothing like getting your hands on a machine to find out what it can and can't do, what it consists of. We had this notion that we needed a computer associated with the project, that we could do demonstrations in the studio and that people could go out and buy it and use it at home. In order to do that we had to have a standard, a software standard that ran right through the programs and that standard was BBC Basic. That was the underlying rationale of having the micro. Seven companies were identified by the Department for Trade and Industry as being possible candidates. We wrote to them all with our specification and six bid. We looked at the bids very carefully, with BBC engineers and consultants from the outside, and we decided that Acorn was the best offer. We were surprised by the reaction. We had audiences between 500,000 and 1.2 million late night on BBC One. We managed to reach 16% of the adult population with one program or another, so our reach was very wide. We had a basic book, the computer book, following the series and 80,000 copies were sold in half a year. We had a course to learn BBC Basic in 30 hours and 120,000 copies were sold. The penetration of the project into the population was very great. This wasn't just because of our genius, it was because it was timely. There was enormous curiosity about the subject, about computing. of today's music comes from the Podsafe Music Network. If you'd like to contact me with some feedback or an article that you might think would be suitable for the show or any other communication, my email address is paulrex at paulrex.com <laughs> Hi, sorry to interrupt your program. This is Lynn from Living in a Chemical Soup Talkcast, where we talk about harmful everyday household products and how to choose better alternatives. Please visit my website at chemicalsoup.ming.com or join in our weekly talkcast every Thursday. And now, back to Paul Rex. Jenna Brinner, writing for the LiveScience.com website, has written an article that 
all of us males know to be totally true. Clueless guys can't read women. More often than not, guys interpret even friendly cues, such as a subtle smile from a gal, as a sexual come-on, and a new study discovers why guys are clueless. More precisely, they are somewhat oblivious to the emotional subtleties of nonverbal cues, according to a new study of college students. Young men just find it difficult to tell the difference between women who are being friendly and women who are interested in something more, said lead researcher Corrine Farris of Indiana University's Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. This lost-in-translation phenomenon plays out in the real world, with about 70% of college women reporting an experience in which a guy mistook her friendliness from a sexual come-on. Farris said. Some might think the results come down to boys being boys and so even the slightest female interests spark sexual fantasy. But the study, to be detailed in the April issue of the journal Psychological Science, also found that it goes both ways for guys. They mistake female sexual signs as friendly ones. The researchers suggest guys have trouble noticing and interpreting the subtleties of nonverbal cues in either direction. The study's finding came from the National Institutes of Mental Health and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. To unravel it all, Farris and her colleagues examined nonverbal communication in a group of 280 undergraduates both men and women, with an average age of 20 years old. The students viewed images of women on a computer screen and had to categorise each as friendly, sexually interested, sad or rejecting. Each student reported on 280 photographs, which had been sorted previously into one of the categories based on surveys completed by different groups of students. Overall, women categorised more images correctly than men did. When it came to friendly gestures, men were more likely than women to interpret these to mean sexual interest. More surprising, the researchers found guys were also confused by sexual clues. When images of gals meant to show allure flashed onto the screen, male students mistook the allure as amicable signals. So ladies trying to brush off a guy at work or the gym may need to be, um, more direct? Men in the study also had more trouble than women distinguishing between sadness and rejection. The results helped to tease out the underlying causes of guys' flirt or not mistakes. One common explanation for reports of men taking a friendly gesture as she wants me is based on men's inherent interest in sex, which is thought to result from their biology as well as their upbringing. Following this idea, men and women would be aware of the same behavioural cues, but men would have a lower threshold for what qualifies as sexual interest. In contrast, women would wait for compelling evidence before labelling a behaviour as sexual interest. However, Farris and her colleagues didn't find this to be the case. Rather than seeing the world through sex-coloured glasses, men seemed to just have a blurry vision of sorts overall. For instance, the college guys sometimes mistook sexual advances as pal-like gestures, 
I would say that there are many factors that could relate to men demonstrating insensitivity to women's subtle nonverbal cues, said Pamela McGoslin, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, who was not involved in the current study. These factors would include socialisation, gender roles and gender stereotypes, she said. For instance, women are supposed to be the communicators, concerned with relationships and others. Men are supposed to be less concerned with communication and to be constantly alert for sexual opportunities, McCausland said. This could mean that men in general may be less sensitive to subtle nonverbal behaviour than women. That doesn't mean such men can't learn to read cues or that all men are clueless decoders of women's gestures. These are average differences. Some men are very skilled at reading effective cues, Farris told Live Science. And some women find the task challenging. On the 16th of November 2007, Richard Selensky wrote this article for the damninteresting.com website. The Sound of the Aurora. If you happen to be reasonably close to one of the Earth's magnetic poles, the next time there's a particularly intense aurora, go outside. Get as far away as you can from sources of noise traffic, barking dogs, TVs, and listen. Listen carefully. If the conditions are right, you may hear some unusual noises. Ear witnesses have said the sound is like radiostatic, a small animal rustling through dry grass and leaves, or the crinkling of cellophane wrapper. Inuit folklore says it's the sound of the spirits of the dead, either playing a game or trying to communicate with the living. It's the sound of the aurora itself, and the cause is currently unknown. Understanding the phenomenon is made more difficult by the fact that though there are many anecdotal reports, the sound has yet to be recorded. Aurora displays are caused by the solar wind interacting with the Earth's magnetic field and atmosphere. Because these interactions happen at altitudes of at least 60 kilometres, the sounds heard cannot be made by the aurora directly. Even if the air up there were dense enough to support sound waves, they would disperse and fade long before they reached the ground. The sounds aren't common, and there doesn't seem to be any consistency in their occurrences. What's more, one observer of an aurora may hear the sounds distinctly, while another of the same display, even at the same location, may not. The inconsistency makes it difficult to determine the underlying cause of the sounds. As with any faint phenomenon that is difficult to observe and study, theories abound. One hypothesis claims it's all in the observer's head. Modern media has made us used to hearing sound along with visual display. So we sometimes believe we are hearing things even when there is no actual sound. But this doesn't account for those Inuit legends that predate the technological era, nor does it account for observations made by blindfolded or indoor observers. Another theory also claims it's all in your head, but for a different reason. Electrophonic hearing is the direct stimulation of the auditory nerves by external electromagnetic fields. There are reports of people hearing clicks and pops, coincident with lightning flashes and well ahead of any thunder that can only be explained this way. 
The theory is unable to explain why only the sense of hearing is affected, though there are rare reports of people noticing odd smells accompanying an aurora display. The sounds could also be due to what is known as brush discharge. According to this theory, the ionisation effects that produce the aurora are technically reaching ground level, but the intensity at low altitudes is not strong enough to produce a visual display. This causes a build-up of static electricity on nearby objects, which intermittently discharges into the atmosphere. In effect, this produces microscopic bolts of lightning. If this theory is correct, the sound the observer is hearing is the results of thousands of these tiny sparks. The effect would be strongest on long, thin, dry objects, such as grass or frizzy hair, which are best at bleeding off excess charge. Of all the hypotheses, the most likely suspect, since it can be duplicated in the lab, is electrophonic transduction. Certain very low frequency waves have the same frequency as sound waves. Long thin conductors, grass, hair, wire eyeglass frames, serve as antennae for these radio waves. When these antennae receive the signal, they vibrate and transform the radio energy directly into sound. VLF radio waves have been detected in aurora displays and have been found to be produced by meteors as well. It is worth noting that sounds similar to those associated with aurora have been heard in conjunction with meteors and even recorded. Electrophonic transduction is similar to the cases where dental work turns people's mouths into radio receivers. That phenomenon is believed to be the result of fillings or braces acting as a crude crystal radio which can pick up AM signals when close to a strong source. A person's body acts as the antenna and the combination of saliva and metal fillings can behave like a diode to rectify or demodulate a strong AM signal. A loose filling or bridge work can act as a small speaker and the sound is carried to the ear through bone conduction. Rusty pipes have also been heard to function as radio receivers in this fashion. Electrophonic transduction is different from this phenomenon in that it does not involve rectifying or demodulation. But there's still no firm consensus as to whether the sounds of the aurora are the product of very low frequency radio waves, electromagnetic stimulation or overactive imaginations. So the next time there's a nice display in your area, go outside. Get as far away from everything else as you can. Look up and listen. You might just hear something inexplicable. And today's feature article, Where Angels No Longer Fear to Tread, comes from the Science and Technology section of the www.economist.com. Science and religion have often been at loggerheads. Now the former has decided to resolve the problem 
by trying to explain the existence of the latter. By the standards of European scientific collaboration, two million euros is not a huge sum, but it might be the start of something that will challenge human perceptions of reality at least as much as the billions being spent by the European Particle Physics Laboratory, or CERN, at Geneva. The first task of CERN's new machine, the Large Hadron Collider, which is due to open later this year, will be to search for the Higgs boson, an object that has been dubbed with a certain amount of hyperbole, the God particle. The two million euros, by contrast, will be spent on the search for God himself, or rather, for the biological reasons why so many people believe in God, gods, and religion in general. Explaining religion, as the project is known, is the largest ever scientific study of the subject. It began last September and will run for three years, and involves scholars from 14 universities and a range of disciplines, from psychology to economics. And it is merely the latest manifestation of a growing tendency for science to poke its nose into the God business. Religion cries out for a biological explanation. It is a ubiquitous phenomenon, arguably one of the species markers of Homo sapiens, but a puzzling one. It has none of the obvious benefits of that other marker of humanity, language. Nevertheless, it consumes huge amounts of resources. Moreover, unlike language, it is a subject of violent disagreements. Science has, however, made significant progress in understanding the biology of language, from where it is processed in the brain to exactly how it communicates meaning. Time, therefore, to put religion under the microscope as well. Explaining religion is an ambitious attempt to do this. The experiments it will sponsor are designed to look at the mental mechanisms needed to represent an omniscient deity, whether and how belief in such a surveillance camera God might improve reproductive success to an individual's Darwinian advantage, and whether religion enhances a person's reputation, for instance. Do people think that those who believe in God are more trustworthy than those who do not? The researchers will also seek to establish whether different religions foster different levels of cooperation, for what reasons, and whether such cooperation brings collective benefits, both to the religious community and to those outside it. It is an ambitious shopping list. Fortunately, other researchers have blazed a trail. Patrick McNamara, for example, is the head of the Evolutionary Neurobehaviour Laboratory at Boston's University School of Medicine. He works with people who suffer from Parkinson's disease. This illness is caused by a low level of a messenger molecule called dopamine in certain parts of the brain. In a preliminary study, Dr. McNamara discovered that those with Parkinson's had lower levels of religiosity than healthy individuals, and that the difference seemed to correlate with the disease's severity. He therefore suspects a link with dopamine levels and is now conducting a follow-up involving some patients who are taking dopamine-boosting medicine and some of whom are not. Such neurochemical work, though preliminary, may tie in with scanning studies conducted to find out which parts of the brain are involved in religious experience. 
Nina Azari, a neuroscientist at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, who also has a doctorate in theology, has looked at the brains of religious people. She used positron emission tomography, or PET, to measure brain activity in six fundamentalist Christians and six non-religious, though not atheist, controls. The Christians all said that reciting the verse of the 23rd Psalm helped them enter a religious state of mind. So both groups were scanned in six different sets of circumstances. While reading the first verse of the 23rd Psalm, while reciting it out loud, while reading a happy story, a well-known German children's rhyme, while reciting that story out loud, and while reading a neutral text, how to use a calling card, and while at rest. Dr. Azari was expecting to see activity in the limbic systems of the Christians when they recited the psalm. Previous research has suggested that this part of the brain, which regulates emotion, is an important centre of religious activity. In fact, what happened was increased activity in three areas of the frontal and parietal cortex, some of which are better known for their involvement in rational thought. The control group did not show activity in these parts of their brains when listening to the psalm, and intriguingly, the only thing that triggered limbic activity in either group was reading the happy story. Dr. Azari's PET study, together with one by Andrew Newberg of the University of Pennsylvania, which used single photon emission computer tomography done on Buddhist monks, and another by Mario Beauregard of the University of Montreal, which put Carmelite nuns in a magnetic resonance imaging machine, all suggest that religious activity is spread across many parts of the brain. That conflicts not only with the limbic system theory, but also with earlier reports of a so-called godspot that derived partly from work conducted on epileptics. These reports suggested that religiosity originates specifically in the brain's temporal lobe, and that religious visions are the result of epileptic seizures that affect this part of the brain. Though there is clearly still a long way to go, this sort of imaging should eventually tie down the circuitry of religious experience and that, combined with the work on messenger molecules of the sort that Dr McNamara is doing, will illuminate how the brain generates and processes religious experiences. Dr Azari, however, is sceptical that such work will say much about religion's evolution and function. For this, other methods are needed. Dr. McNamara, for example, plans to analyse a database called the Ethnographic Atlas to see if he can find any correlations between the amount of cultural cooperation found in a society and the intensity of its religious rituals. And Richard Sosis, an anthropologist at the University of Connecticut, has already done some research which suggests that the long-term cooperative benefits of religion outweigh the short-term costs it imposes in the form of praying many times a day, avoiding certain foods, fasting, and so on. On the face of things, it's puzzling that such costly behaviour should persist. Some scholars, however, draw an analogy with sexual selection. The splendour of a peacock's tail and the throaty roar of a stag really do show which males are fittest and thus help females choose. Similarly, signs of religious commitment that are hard to fake provide a costly and reliable signal to others in a group 
that anyone engaging in them is committed to that group. Free riders, in other words, would not be able to gain the advantages of group membership. To test whether religion might have emerged as a way of improving group cooperation while reducing the need to keep an eye out for free riders, Dr. Sosis drew on a catalogue of 19th century American communes published in 1988 by Yakov Ovid of Tel Aviv University. Dr. Sosis picked 200 of these for his analysis. 88 were religious and 112 were secular. Dr. Ovid's data include the span of each commune's existence, and Dr. Sosis found that communes, whose ideology was secular, were up to four times as likely as religious ones to dissolve in any given year. A follow-up study that Dr. Sosis conducted in collaboration with Eric Bressler of McMaster University in Canada focused on 83 of these communes, 30 religious, 53 secular, to see if the amount of time they survive correlated with the strictures and expectations they imposed on the behaviour of their members. The two researchers examined things like food consumption, attitudes to material possessions, rules about communication, rituals and taboos, and rules about marriage and sexual relationships. As they expected, they found that the more constraints a religious commune placed on its members, the longer it lasted. One is still going at the grand old age of 149. But the same did not hold true of secular communes, where the oldest was 40. Dr. Sosis therefore concludes that ritual constraints are not by themselves enough to sustain cooperation in a community. What is needed in addition is a belief that those constraints are sanctified. Dr. Sosis has also studied modern secular and religious kibbutzism in Israel. Because a kibbutz, by its nature, depends on group cooperation, the principal difference between the two is the use of religious ritual. Within religious communities, men are expected to pray three times daily in groups of at least ten, while women are not. It should therefore be possible to observe whether group rituals do improve cooperation based on the behaviour of men and women. To do so, Dr. Sosis teamed up with Bradley Ruffle, an economist at the Ben-Gurion University in Israel. They devised a game to be played by two members of a kibbutz. This was a variant on what is known to economists as the common pool resource dilemma, which involves two people trying to divide a pot of money without knowing how much the other is asking for. In the version of the game devised by Dr. Sosis and Dr. Ruffle, each participant was told that there was an envelope with a hundred shekels in each, between one-sixth and one-eighth of the normally monthly income. Both players could request money from the envelope, but if the sum of their requests exceeded its contents, neither got any cash. If, however, their request equaled or was less than the hundred shekels, not only did they keep the money, but the amount left was increased by 50% and split between them. Dr. Sosis and Dr. Ruffle picked the common pool resource dilemma because the communal lives of kibbutz members means they often face similar dilemmas over such things as communal food, power and cars. The researcher's hypothesis was that in religious kibbutzim men would be better collaborators and thus would take less than women, while in secular kibbutzim men and women would take about the same. And that's exactly what happened. 
Dr. Sosis is not the only researcher to employ economic games to investigate the nature and possible advantages of religion. Ara Norenzayan, an experimental psychologist at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, has conducted experiments using what is known as a dictator game. This too is a well-established test used to gauge altruistic behaviour. Participants receive a sum of money, the doctor set it at $10, and asked if they would like to share it with another player. The dictator game thus differs from another familiar economic game in which one person divides the money and the other decides whether to accept or reject that division. As might be expected in the simple version of the dictator game, most people take most or all of the money. However, Dr. Noanzayan and his graduate student Azim Sharif tried to tweak the game by introducing the idea of God. They did this by priming half of their volunteers to think about religion by getting them to unscramble sentences containing religious words such as God, Spirit, Divine, Sacred and Prophet. Those thus primed left an average of $4.22, while the unprimed left $1.84. Exactly what they discovered here is not clear. A follow-up experiment, which primed people with secular words that might nevertheless have prompted them to behave in an altruistic manner, civic, jury, court, police and contract, had similar effects. So it may be that he has touched on a general question of morality, rather than a specific one of religion. However, an experiment carried out by Jesse Baring of Queen's University in Belfast showed quite specifically that the perceived presence of a supernatural being can affect a person's behaviour, although in this case the being was not God, but the ghost of a dead person. Dr. Baring, too, likes the hypothesis that religion promotes fitness by promoting collaboration within groups. One way that might work would be to rely not just on under other individuals to detect cheats by noticing things like slacking on the prayers or eating during fasts, but for cheats to detect and police themselves as well. In that case, a sense of being watched by a supernatural being might be useful. Dr. Baring thus proposes that belief in such things would prevent what he called dangerous risk miscalculations that would lead to social deviance and reduced fitness. One of the experiments he did to test this idea was to subject a bunch of undergraduates to a quiz. His volunteers were told that the best performer among them would receive a $50 prize. They were also told that the computer program that presented the questions had a bug in it, which sometime caused the answer to appear on the screen before the question. The volunteers were therefore instructed to hit the spacebar immediately if the word answer appeared on the screen. That would remove the answer and ensure the test results were fair. The volunteers were then divided into three groups. Two began by reading a note dedicating the test to a recently deceased graduate student. One did not see the note. Of the two groups shown the note, one was told by the experimenter that the student's ghost had sometimes been seen in the room. The other group was not given this suggestion. The so-called glitch occurred five times for each student. Dr. Baring measured the amount of time it took to press the spacebar on each occasion. He discarded the first result as likely to be unreliable and then averaged the other four. 
he found that those who had been told the ghost story were much quicker to press the spacebar than those who had not. They did so in an average of 4.3 seconds. That compared to 6.3 seconds for those who had only read the note about the student's death and 7.2 for those who had not heard any of the story concerning the dead student. In short, awareness of a ghost, a supernatural agent, made people less likely to cheat. It all sounds very Darwinian, but there is a catch. The American communes, the kibbutzim, the students of the University of British Columbia, and even the supernatural self-censorship observed by Dr. Baring all seem to involve behaviour that promotes the group over the individual. That is the opposite of Darwinism, as conventionally understood. But it might be explained by an idea that most Darwinians dropped in the 1960s group selection. The idea that evolution can work by the differential survival of entire groups of organisms, rather than just of individuals, was rejected because it is mathematically implausible. But it has been revived recently, in particular by David Sloan Wilson of Binghamton University in New York, as a way of explaining the evolution of human morality in the context of intertribal warfare. Such warfare can be so murderous that groups whose members fail to collaborate in an individually self-sacrificial way may be wiped out entirely. This negates the benefits of selfish behaviour within a group. Morality and religion are often closely connected, of course, so what holds for the one might be expected to hold for the other, too. Dr Wilson himself has studied the relationship between social insecurity and religious fervour and discovered that regardless of the religion in question, it is the least secure societies that tend to be the most fundamentalist. That would make sense if adherence to the rules is a condition for the security which comes from membership of a group. He is also interested in what some religions hold out as the ultimate reward for good behaviour, life after death. That can promote any amount of self-sacrifice in a believer, up to and including suicidal behaviour, as recent events in the Islamic world have emphasised. However, belief in an afterlife is not equally well developed in all religions, and he suspects the differences may be illuminating. This does not mean there are no explanations for religion that are based on individual selection. For example, Jason Sloan, a professor of religious studies at Webster University in St. Louis, argues that people who are religious will be seen as more likely to be faithful and to help in parenting rather than those who are not. That makes them desirable as mates. He plans to conduct experiments designed to find out whether this is so. And, slightly tongue-in-cheek, Dr. Wilson quips that secularism is very maladaptive biologically. We're the ones who at best are having only two kids. Religious people are the ones who aren't smoking and drinking and are living longer and having the health benefits. That quip, though, makes an intriguing point. Evolutionary biologists tend to be atheists, and most would be surprised if the scientific investigation of religion did not end up supporting their point of view. But if a propensity to religious behaviour really is an involved trait then they have talked themselves into a position where they cannot benefit from it, much as a sceptic cannot benefit from the placebo effect of homeopathy. Maybe, therefore, it is God who will have the last laugh after all, 
whether he actually exists or not. of the nationalgeographicnews.com website reports on an Easter surprise. The oldest rabbit bones have been found. You need some serious luck to find a 53 million year old rabbit's foot. As it happens, Kenneth Rose was so fortunate, but it took him a few years to realise it. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine anatomy professor unearthed curious bones in India several years ago. He suspected they were important but could not identify them, so he stored them in a drawer until serendipity struck in spring 2007. One day I was teaching my mammals course and showing the students the foot of a jackrabbit, and I said, hey, that's what we have here in the drawer. That fateful foot now appears to belong to the world's earliest known rabbit found so far, some three to four million years older than its closest contemporary. Though modern jackrabbit feet are four times larger, they match the 0.25 inch long Indian fossils in shape. All we have is ankle bones. We'd sure like to find some teeth or skulls, but this is what we have at the moment, and they are unmistakable, Rose said. Previous studies have suggested that rabbits and hares diverged from pikers or mouse-like mammals that are part of the order of Lagomorpha some 35 million years ago. But Rose and colleagues believe the new bones show that advanced rabbit-like features evolved as far back as the early Eocene, which lasted from 54.8 to 33.7 million years ago. They don't look like pikers, they look more like rabbits, he said. Robert Asher, a zoologist at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom, who is unaffiliated with the research, agreed. The particular importance of this is that it documents the oldest occurrence of a crown lagomorph, that is, a lagomorph that shares a closer relationship to rabbits and hares to the exclusion of pikers, he said. The rabbit's occurrence in India initially threw rows for a loop. No rabbits older than about 18 million years old have ever been discovered on the Indian subcontinent. The previous oldest known rabbit had all been unearthed in Central Asia where it is commonly believed that the animals originated. But that doesn't mean that rabbits have an Indian origin, Rose said. The likelihood from the other evidence we have is the origin of rabbits was probably in Central Asia, he explained. For instance, Gomphos alkima was present in this region and must have been in the group that gave rise to lagomorphs, Rose said. The 55-million-year-old G. Alkema is a primitive rabbit ancestor that has features of both rodents and lagomorphs, which likely share a common lineage. Rose's research was published online in the February issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society, B. Cambridge's Asher said these early rabbits were likely on the move. We know that the Indian subcontinent had land connections with the Asian mainland since at least the base of the Eocene, he said. So it's not surprising that we have some kind of lagomorph on the subcontinent by this time in Earth's history.
and a second fossil story, this time from thelivescience.com, and it's by Clara Moskowitz. A new fossil is oldest upright walker. A six million year old early relative of modern humans apparently walked on two feet, pushing back the origins of so-called bipedalism, according to a new study of a fossil found in Kenya. I would say at this point it's the earliest fossil homonym that we can clearly identify as bipedal, said paleoanthropologist William Jungers of Stony Brook University, who conducted a quantitative analysis with Brian Richmond of George Washington University of a fossilised femur bone from the species named Ororin tugenensis. It is one of the earliest known pre-humans. The researchers compared the shape of this thigh bone to those of modern humans, apes and other early hominins, including Australopithecus, the species which, to which the famous Lucy fossil belongs. The team determined that the femur bears the signatures of bipedalism, or walking upright on two feet. The research funded by the National Science Foundation and Stony Brook and George Washington Universities is detailed in the March 21 issue of the journal Science. Carol Ward, an anatomist of the University of Missouri-Columbia, who was not involved in the research, says the team's findings are significant. No detailed study has ever been done on this fossil, and they did a very solid comparative metric analysis, she said. What's special about O2 genensis and other early humans that lived between 6 and 2 million years ago is that they not only travelled on the ground on two legs, but also retained the ability to climb trees, Jungers said. These are bipedal walkers. They were also using the trees for food, sleeping and escaping from predators, Jungers told live scientists. The researchers think that O2 genensis was a climber because of a finger bone also found belonging to the species. The finger is curved, Jungers said, a sign that it was used to grasp trees. Ward said she isn't convinced this species or its later relatives spent a lot of time in trees. Everyone agrees they were well adapted to walking upright on the ground, she said. People differ on how important tree climbing was. I think we can't say yet, we need more fossils. Eventually the ancestors of modern humans completely lost their expert climbing abilities. What happened at about two million years ago is really fascinating because you relinquish this very special body plan and what emerges is a body plan that's much more similar to yours and mine, Jungers said. At this point our ancestors gave up their curved finger bones and gained longer hind legs, perfect for walking long distances and running, but not as well suited to scrambling around trees. The O2 Genensis fossils were discovered in 2000 by a team led by French researchers Martin Pickford and Brigitte Senou. The find was dubbed Millennium Man. Pickford and Senou were the first to propose the species was bipedal, but it wasn't until Jungers and Richmond's new study that this could be confirmed. The fossil's discoverers suggested that Ororin was a direct ancestor of modern humans, with special similarities to us. Jungers and Richmond found that these ancient fossils actually have much more in common with Australopithecus, an extinct early homonym made famous by the discovery of Lucy. Australopithecus appeared about four million years ago, two million years after O2 Genensis. Ward agreed that the new study disproved the hypothesis that Ororin was a direct modern human ancestor. This certainly puts the nail in the coffin on that idea, she said very carefully demonstrated 
that it looks like Australopithecus. But Australopithecus and O2genensis were smaller than modern humans, and stocky, Jungers said. They had big teeth, projecting faces and small brains, closer to the size of chimpanzee brains than ours. Though O2genensis was not our direct ancestor, it was part of the group of early hominins that eventually gave rise to our genus Homo, as opposed to the related group from which chimpanzees emerged. The study of the Ororan fossils helps scientists narrow down when humans and chimpanzees split. This clearly postdates that split, so it gives us a minimum date of six million years ago for humans splitting off, Jungers said. by Anne Castleman from Scientific American. The Earth has more than one North Pole. The North Pole is more than just the top of the planet. You may think of the North Pole as only the top of the world, its northernmost point, and if you're younger, Santa's home. But it turns out there are a host of North and South Poles on our planet. First and most simply, there is a town in Alaska called North Pole which isn't near any of the other North Pole, but it does get snow and receive lots of mail addressed to Santa Claus. Then there is the geographic North Pole, also known as True North. This is the spot in the Arctic Ocean where all the man-made lines of longitude converge on a map, as well as the conceptual point on the ice-encrusted waters that countless explorers sought to stab with their national banner-bearing flagpoles, beginning in 1827 with British Rear Admiral Sir William Edward Parry. Somewhat related to the geographic North Pole is the considerably less famous instantaneous North Pole, where Earth's rotational axis meets its surface, as well as the celestial North Pole, where the axis spears the night sky, in an imaginary extension kind of way. The instantaneous North Pole is not fixed. Rather, it moves in an irregular circle caused by the Chandler Wobble, named for astronomer Seth Carlo Chandler, who discovered it in 1891, that our planet wobbles as it rotates. His discovery gives rise to the North Pole of Balance, which lies at the centre of this circle. All of this jargon separates into unique, if not pedantic, definitions. So, although they all share the term North Pole, each has clearly staked out its own semantic territory. The same cannot be said, however, of the last two North Poles in this rundown, and both relate to Earth's very real magnetic field, which is generated by the fluid motion inside the planet's core. That motion, affected by Earth's rotation, sets up a naturally occurring electric generator that sustains the magnetic field. The magnetic pole describes the two locations, north and south, where the planet's magnetic field is vertical, so if you're standing over the North Magnetic Pole with a compass, the needle would dip and try to point straight down. Hence its other name, the Magnetic Dip Pole. Over the South Magnetic Pole, your compass needle would point upward. But there is another magnetically based North Pole, the North Geomagnetic Pole. 
One thing that's very confusing is the fact that there's a magnetic pole and a geomagnetic pole and that they're different, says Stefan Maus, a geomagnetic field modeller at the National Ocean Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Geophysical Data Centre, or the NOAA. It's a historical and slightly outdated definition. The geomagnetic poles are almost an artefact of reducing Earth's complex and varied magnetic field to that of a simple bar magnet or dipole. The only thing that we really want to know is where the field is really vertical, Mouse said. This other pole, which is just an approximation, is generally not very useful and often leads to confusion. So while the north dip pole lies in northern Canada, the northern dipole is roughly off the northwest coast of Greenland. But the geomagnetic pole is useful if you're in space, argues Geoffrey J. Love, a US Geological Survey geophysicist. The farther away from Earth you get, the more its magnetic field actually does act like a dipole or a bar magnet, even if in reality it is no such thing. A space physicist usually thinks in terms of this tilted dipole that Earth has, Love says whereas a navigator would probably be more interested in the magnetic dip poles. To further confuse things, the dip poles move around, sometimes with daily frequency. The north magnetic pole in recent years has started shifting quickly towards Siberia. Its annual movement has accelerated from 10 to 50 kilometres, says Larry Newitt, an emeritus scientist with the Geological Survey of Canada, who has pegged the pole's location on many expeditions since 1973. And here's something to add even more confusion to the North Magnetic Pole, or aka Dip Pole, versus North Geomagnetic Pole, aka Dipole. The magnetic pole in Earth's northern hemisphere acts like the south pole of a bar magnet. If you look at the north pole of the bar magnet, you have the field lines going up from the north pole to the south pole. But for the Earth, it's exactly the opposite, Mouse explains. So the north magnetic pole is where the Earth's magnetic field lines pull toward the planet, acting like the south pole of a bar magnet. From a physics standpoint, then, the north needle of a compass, or any magnet, points to what is physically but not in name, the south magnetic pole of the Earth, and in other words, the direction of the Arctic. The north pole of your bar magnet is attracted to the north magnetic pole of the Earth, Mouse adds, the reverse of the usual situation in which like poles on magnets repel one another. That is why some people have suggested that to avoid this confusion, we should call the north magnetic pole the north-seeking pole. Whether that would add or subtract from the confusion remains unclear. What is clear that, even in Santa Claus related matters, one must be very precise in specifying exactly what one is talking about when referring to the North Pole. And a short article from the dailygalaxy.com. The UFO phenomenon, religion or science? Is the world's fascination with the possibility of UFOs and more a religion 
or a natural intuitive sense that life is out there based on current scientific research and recent planet search discoveries. One of the world's preeminent astrophysicists, Carl Sagan, believed that the interest in unidentified flying objects derives perhaps not so much from scientific curiosity as from unfulfilled religious needs. No one could have foreseen the extent to which the idea of UFOs would pervade popular culture prior to the publication in 1897 of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds and Kurd Laswitz on Two Planets, both the vanguard of an enormous number of treatments of the alien theme in science fiction. The modern UFO era and the birth of the extraterrestrial hypothesis began on June 24, 1947, when Kenneth Arnold, flying his private plane near Mount Rainier in Washington, reported nine disc-shaped objects flying in formation at speeds he estimated to be over 1,000 miles per hour. Arnold, a respected businessman and deputy U.S. Marshal, was taken seriously, and his description of the objects as flying like a saucer if you skipped it across the water led to newspapers to coin the term flying saucer. The alien hypothesis first officially emerged in 1948 with the Air Force Project Sign, which concluded that UFOs were of extraterrestrial origin. The report was later declassified and burned by General Hoyt Vandenberg. If UFOs exist, how do they traverse the universe? According to the conventional wisdom, one can only travel through time in a linear fashion at no faster than the speed of light. At that rate, it would take millions of years to traverse the universe, and who has time for that? If there's a way to manipulate space and time curvatures, then we have all the time we need. In sync with India's love affair with UFOs, a recent editorial in a popular Indian news site, UFOs, Singularity, Time-Folding and just about every other theory ever proposed, are a complete given. After all, one aspect of quantum physics is that in an alternate universe, everything could happen. While several advanced theories do have some solid ideas to back them up, others seem a bit far-fetched, even for those willing to accept that there may be upwards of 26 dimensions rather than the standard four. So what current theory is most likely to someday satisfactorily explain the science of UFOs? Though it may seem like pure fiction, it is commonly accepted that wormholes are possible within the framework of general relativity. Although folding space has yet to be documented, there continues to be a healthy debate in the scientific community about their possible existence. If they do exist, it would explain how something or someone could traverse huge distances very quickly. Stephen Hawking gave a lecture which discussed the possibility of wormholes in folding space. The implications of human travel through these wormholes could result in shortcutting through vast distances and even time itself. According to this idea, one could even move faster than the speed of light. Professor Hawking puts it this way, If you can travel from one side of the galaxy to the other in a week or two, you could go back through another wormhole and arrive back before you set out. While a bit unfathomable, a similar type of time travel has already been demonstrated. Scientists who studied passengers on space shuttles have found that, because of the shuttle's high speed, time moved more slowly for those on board. 
So what is a wormhole? Simply put, masses that place pressure on different parts of the universe could eventually come together to form a tunnel. Wormholes are also referred to as Einstein-Rosen bridges and are related to Einstein's theory of special relativity and the space-time continuum. While scientists currently have no realistic method of finding a wormhole, nor proof that they even exist, there is no reason why they couldn't. In fact, their existence would certainly help make sense of some current paradoxes in the world of physics. While the answers aren't quite here yet, the questions are being asked. If wormholes are proven to exist, the possibilities will be literally endless. The final article for today comes from the spacenewscientist.com website and we're still following along the astronomical theme that we've been concentrating on a little bit in today's podcast and it's written by Govert Schilling. The universe's most powerful blast is visible to the naked eye. The most powerful blast ever observed in the universe detonated on Wednesday. That day, a record four gamma-ray bursts were detected by NASA's SWIFT telescope. If you knew exactly when and where to look, you could have seen the bright burst with the naked eye, despite its enormous distance of 7.5 billion light-years. This burst definitely has an oh-wow flavour, says astrophysicist Ralph Wyges of the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Gamma-ray bursts are brief but extremely powerful flashes of high-energy radiation. Theorists think that they signal the violent death of very massive, rapidly rotating stars. Gamma rays can't penetrate Earth's atmosphere, so they can only be observed by space telescopes. But many bursts also produce lower-energy X-rays, radio waves and even visible light. So if you're quick enough, you can study gamma-ray bursts from the ground. That's where NASA's SWIFT satellite comes in. It detects a burst, measures its sky position, then radios the results to robotic telescopes on the ground, all within seconds. With four bursts, Wednesday was the busiest day in the SWIFT's life so far. The second of the four bursts, GRB08319B, occurred at 0613 GMT in the northern constellation Boots, well placed for follow-up observations with telescopes in the US. One of these robotic telescopes called Raptor was already looking in that part of the sky. It witnessed the quick rise and fall of an optical flash, about 30 to 40 seconds after the swift detection. The burst peaked at naked eye visibility, making this the only gamma-ray burst so far that could have been seen without a telescope. But it took a few more hours to determine how powerful the burst really was. Paul Vrieswick of the Dark Cosmology Centre in Copenhagen, Denmark, led a team that measured the distance to the burst using the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in Chile. By studying how much the burst's light had stretched or redshifted as it travelled through the expanding universe, they put the explosion at 7.5 billion light-years away. 
At first I had expected this burst to be much closer, said Vrieswick. It's exciting to be able to see something with the naked eye halfway across the universe. Knowing the distance, astronomers could calculate the burst's true luminosity, two and a half million times brighter than the most powerful supernova ever seen. It's unclear what exactly caused this incredible brightness, but many theorists think that the gamma-ray bursts produced two narrow jets of matter and energy, so we may have been lucky to look right into the cannon's barrel. But, says Van Rieswijk's colleague Jens Jorf, in this business getting surprised ceases to surprise you. Follow-up studies of GRB08319B's afterglow are still in progress. Says Wieges, it doesn't shatter current theoretical thinking, but in terms of detailed knowledge, this will probably be the burst of the year. Well, that concludes episode 20 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you'd like to provide me with some links to articles of interest or some feedback or other information that's useful to the podcast, my email address is paulrex at paulrex.com. You can also provide feedback at iTunes or Podcast Alley or Podcast Pickle or any other podcasting website that's linked to this particular podcast. I also do another podcast called Bizarre, Bizarre, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, B-A-Z-A-A-R, all one word. And if you want something a little bit more lighthearted and humorous, try that one out. You might find it enjoyable. I'll look forward to meeting you all again in episode 21 of Origins. Bye for now. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.